You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. If you look back traditionally, you know, 25, 30 to 1 has been the, the old extreme buy signal for get out of gold and buy oil. And 10 to 1 has been the extreme buy signal to get out of oil and buy gold. Uh, all of those records were shattered in this last cycle. And so now you've gone from that massive high last spring on the relationship back down to sort of, you know, 29, 28, which seems like we've worked off the overvaluation, but we really haven't. We're sort of, even on historical precedents, we're still extremely uh, undervalued in oil and overvalued on gold. So we think that there there could be some further rallying room. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. And joining me again is Adam Rosenswag of Gehring and Rosenswag Resources Mutual Fund. Adam's a returning guest. We had him on the show about six months ago, and his main call in that interview was spot on, in which he said oil will outperform gold over the next six months. So it's been six months later. Bring him back on to the show. Adam, thanks for joining me. That call was right on. Do you have any updated thoughts on that call that you made on my show and how you positioned your fund six months ago? Well, great, great to be back. Thank you, Bill. Um, you know, we, yes, going back six months, that is basically exactly what's happened. And just to give your uh, viewers a little bit of, you know, color and backstory, the way we arrived at that decision uh, last fall was something that we've been studying for a long time at our firm. And that's the relationship between gold and oil and when we looked at, uh, it sort of sounds simple, but when we looked at over time, the price relationship between one ounce of gold and how many barrels of oil that can, can buy, what we noticed was a long trend and a long pattern, uh, periods of intense gold overvaluation, oil undervaluation, and then vice versa. And using those metrics, uh, it's been very predictive um, to be able to determine which ought to outperform going forward. And so uh, when we found ourselves in 2020, because of COVID and various related demand issues around oil, uh, combined with all of the uh, monetary and fiscal um, stimuluses that were being put in place to respond to the pandemic, we started to see an unprecedented relationship between one ounce of gold and one barrel of oil. Now, obviously, when oil prices went negative last April, remember, they went to negative $40 a barrel. Uh, the relationship or the ratio between them became sort of meaningless. However, if you look at it from month end and what have you, you know, you were talking about uh, 90 to 100 times um, one, one ounce could buy 90 to 100 barrels of oil. We've never seen anything like that before. Uh, going back really since oil was first commercially discovered in Pennsylvania and, and Azerbaijan 150 years ago. And to us, that was very emblematic of uh, future outperformance of oil to normalize that relationship a little bit. So when we came on the podcast last time, gold was about 1950, oil was 40. And here we are six months later, gold has sold off about 15, 16%, down about 200 bucks. Uh, I'm sorry, about uh, 10% rather, 200 bucks to about 1770 today. And Oil at the same time has gone from 40 to 60, so it's up 50%. So what does that meant? What and what has where do we stand today? You've worked off a lot of or some of the overvaluation of gold. When we came on the podcast, I believe the ratio was 50 to 1. Uh, today it's down below 30 to 1. So, you know, on some measures, things are moving in the right direction. The, the, the relationship between oil and gold is, is normalizing. But are we at the point yet where we want to be cycling out of oil investments and into gold investments? And there we think uh, not quite yet. 
And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, a relationship of 30 to one or where one ounce can buy 30 barrels, that's still really high historically. If you look back traditionally, you know, 25, 30 to one has been the, the old extreme buy signal for get out of gold and buy oil. And 10 to one has been the extreme buy signal to get out of oil and buy gold. Uh, all of those records were shattered in this last cycle. And so now you've gone from that massive high last spring on the relationship back down to sort of, you know, 29, 28, which seems like we've worked off the overvaluation, but we really haven't. We're sort of, even on historical precedents, we're still extremely uh, undervalued in oil and overvalued on gold. So we think that there, there could be some further rallying room. Second, when I look at the um, near-term fundamentals between gold and oil, we still prefer to favor oil investments and, and oil fundamentals. And the reason for that is last year, we really saw a huge uh, supply response across the global oil industry in response to the much, much impaired demand uh, because of COVID. So, you know, COVID meant that People stopped moving around, particularly air travel really fell precipitously. That had an impact on demand. And people around the world started uh, both shutting in wells and then laying down rigs to not drill new wells. As we all know, oil wells deplete. And so you have to constantly be drilling new ones. And we're not anywhere near drilling enough to hold production flat. So we continue to see here more than a year on, we continue to see production falling quite precipitously. We just got some numbers out of North Dakota where the Bakken shale um, you know, is, is located. Uh, and they saw a huge decrease month on month for the month of February. So we're still seeing those sequential declines. Remember, the shales have been the only source of supply growth for the last decade. So if those are impaired now, we're going to start to see some, some really significant tightening in oil markets. And we're seeing that inventories are falling around the world. So as demand recovers, the oil story, I think, continues to have legs and continues to look very bullish. And Indeed, I think you know prices are responding and the market is starting to, I think, perceive that a little bit more. So what about the gold market? Well, in the gold market, since we last spoke, a few things have happened that I think are, at least in the short term, a little bit problematic. And the two things that I'd like to highlight, the first is you're starting to see um, liquidation from what we call Western investment demand for gold. And how do we measure that? Well, we look at the ETFs. Uh, to us, you know, Eastern buying is typically more physical. Western investment is typically done through the ETFs. That's a broad generalization, of course, but uh, does tend to hold true. We saw, for instance, for most of the last decade, as gold prices fell from 1900 um, in 2011, 2012, and started to fall down, more price-sensitive Eastern physical buying took over. And that sort of absorbed a lot of the liquidation coming out of the ETFs. Now we're seeing uh, that happen again, you know, in the last year or 18 months or so, we saw big accumulation from the ETFs, Western buyers stepped in. And in our estimation, Western buyers are a lot uh, less price sensitive. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, when gold starts to move up, the Western investor says, I want to own some precious metals, and they jump in. Uh, and they're less sensitive to what the price is. They, they want that position. Um, Eastern physical buying, you know, there's a long history and precedent in many cultures in the East uh, to own uh, gold, but it's a very price sensitive uh, type of, of, of buying. You know, when, when, you, when you feel as though there's a little bit of weakness in the price and there's sort of a, a good opportunity, um, a lot of physical buyers will step in in countries like China and India. 
uh, and look to take advantage of that low price. But as soon as prices rise again, you'll see that buying disappear and you can actually track various price premiums and stuff like that to try to get a sense of that. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing the Western investor liquidate a lot of what they accumulated over the last 18 months. And remember, that's pretty price agnostic. That's true when they're accumulating and when they're selling. So that's a little bit troubling. The next thing that we see that's a little bit troubling is the role of central banks. And recall, you know, starting in really 1999, central banks went from being net sellers of gold to net buyers of gold. And that was a huge change that helped tighten the gold market a lot and helped put in the bottom in the late 90s and, and led to the rally through the 2000s. And in the last eight or nine months, we've started to see central banks first slow their gold purchases and then turn from gold net buyers to actually net sellers. So that obviously raises some concerns. And I think that the reason for that is is fairly straightforward. I think that COVID has really made it difficult for many governments around the world to meet their fiscal responsibilities. And so they find, you know, less sort of uh, all attention has to be paid on various monetary and fiscal stimulus to help address um, domestic issues. And there's less sort of money um, to go into accumulating gold reserves. Uh, I think that's true also when you look at the countries that, that are doing it, you know, Turkey and Russia have turned into sizable net sellers. Uh, and again, I think that can be explained by looking at some of their fiscal um, situations domestically. So whatever the case may be, uh, short-term or long-term, it's happening now immediately. And I think that's a new source of supply that we haven't seen before. So when we look at the oil supply demand picture were quite constructive. And when we look at the gold supply demand picture, at least in the near term, we see some challenges. When you layer on the relative valuation, it still is in uh, the favor of oil uh, and away from gold. And so we think that this period will probably continue for a little while longer. Now, over the long term, we remain bullish on gold. And for those investors who are not looking to allocate between oil and gold like we are, uh, I think that gold is a very good long-term investment, particularly for people that sort of want to buy gold, put it away, and, and not worry about it for some time. And the reason I say that is that the global monetary situation just keeps getting um, more and more extreme. And so if you look at how much money has been printed in the last 12 months, it puts the global financial crisis to shame. Uh, this is the first time we're coming out of a uh, recession or a COVID-led recession with the banking and financial system fully intact. You know, we never had a banking panic. We never had a financial collapse. That's very, very rare for a recovery. Normally, you have a, an impaired banking system. Um, so there's all these sort of situations where you have all these indications where you have a ample liquidity in the system, huge amounts of money have been printed, a working financial system, and now we're entering into a recovery. And so I think that backdrop over the medium and longer term actually bodes quite well for gold. And uh, and so for those people that are longer term focused or people that are not looking to make a decision between oil and gold, I think the gold represents a pretty good long term, long term story. But in the short term, there's still some challenges. So you look at the oil and gold ratio as your primary indicator for when you're going to move money out of oil into gold. And if I recall in our last interview, it was 25% uh, would be the full weighting within your fund for a gold position when that's fully al allocated. Do you have a price per barrel of oil or is it only that you would look at, say, I think we're peaking out here, or is it only this oil to gold ratio? No, we certainly have a price target uh, on crude, and the only thing that I would point out there is there's a little bit different, a little bit of a difference between what we would sort of call our mid-cycle equilibrium price, which is a price target, 
and where we expect oil prices could go. And, and just as a simple um, you know, example of that, uh, our mid-cycle oil price is not $25 a barrel, and yet oil very easily got to $25 a barrel. So very clearly, the price can overshoot and undershoot. And I think people intuitively understand that it can undershoot, but they seem more skeptical of ever admitting that perhaps it can overshoot as well. So our long-term mid-cycle price is probably somewhere in the $85 a barrel range and maybe 85 to 95, let's say. Uh, I do think if you took oil back to 100, there are certain parts of the shale basins that might not be economic that would then all of a sudden come into money. So would it be possible to grow supply again from the shales at least for a year or two or three? Uh, with a hundred dollar oil, you probably could. Uh, I don't see. I don't see why you wouldn't be able to, based on our studies of, of those basins. However, if there's a perception of shortage, which I think there's a strong risk that we could get into here, because I think you know we've gone through ten years where the prevailing wisdom in the oil market is that we have plenty, uh, that we're sort of running into oil, that you know we're opening up new shale basins for development, and that's leading to sort of big uh, step changes in terms of production. Um, if we start to have a new investor psychology where instead of surplus, we have ongoing deficits and shortages, I think that oil prices can very easily go above what I would call their long-term sustainable price. And so I think that you could easily have oil over $100. Uh, last time, in the last cycle, we took oil up to $145 a barrel. That was in 2008. And you definitely saw some demand destruction taking place at that high price level. I would say that that certainly would be a top here. And I would say probably lower than that this time for a whole bunch of different reasons, including I think that the global economic landscape is probably a little bit shakier today than it was in 2007, um, you know, or sort of pre, pre, the, pre the crash, pre the run up and crash. Um, and, and I think that the challenge or the competition from various sorts of renewables would this time probably, if you took oil to 145, uh, because of shortages around the world, I think you could make a much stronger case for some of the renewable energies. Arcana Silver is on the verge of bringing the world's highest grade silver mine into production. The Revenue Virginius Mine in Colorado has proven and probable silver reserves grading nearly 37 ounces per ton silver, with all-in sustaining production costs of only $8 per ounce of silver. The mine is fully funded and permitted with infrastructure already in place and has announced production will commence in 2021. Achieving successful production should result in a significant upward share price re-rating on the Lassonde curve. Arcana trades under the ticker AUN in Toronto and AUNFF in New York. To learn more, go to arcana.com. That's A-U-R-C-A-N-A.com. Would you say that the, the green energy movement might be a little hyped up right now? How do you perceive any bubble that might be occurring here? We certainly do, and we've been uh, quite vocal and adamant of saying that that we do have a green energy bubble taking place today. And I think it's really unfortunate for several reasons. The most important is that if you actually do believe that we have a carbon problem, uh, which I think most people do, and you believe that that ought to be addressed and solved, the issue is that we're making massive malinvestment into technologies that I don't ultimately think will achieve that goal. And the problem there is that if we do have a wipeout, uh, like I believe is coming, and we can talk about some of the reasons why, that's likely going to shut off funding for some other very viable technologies and other viable strategies that could 
help reduce carbon going forward. And I think a great example of that is look at what France has been able to do with their carbon emissions. They have by far the lowest carbon emissions per capita or per unit of energy consumed anywhere in the world. And it's because they have a huge nuclear power base. Um, if we could sort of address these issues uh, sensibly and address some of the weaknesses and limitations of wind and solar and electric vehicles, I think then all of a sudden people might give you know things like nuclear energy and nuclear power a uh, more thorough investigation and a little bit more of a sensible analysis whereas now you know that's just not happening and and what's happening is the price action is begetting the narrative and the story and you have this feedback loop so for instance what i mean by that is if you look at the clean etfs that have gone up 5 6 700% over the last you know pick the number of years that are based predominantly on electric vehicles wind and solar I think it makes it very much more difficult to be able to say, look, I think there's some real challenges with those technologies. People say, how can that be? The stocks keep going up and up and up. That must be some type of a validation. But the problem is that that you know those problems are there. Uh, those limitations of wind and solar, namely the fact that they're intermittent, uh, are there. And so if we just had sort of an honest discussion, I think that we would have a much more sensible policy going forward. And, and the risk here is that so much money now is poured into these technologies and so much money is poured into these stocks that you are approaching bubble territory or you, you've long gone past it. And I think the results could be quite detrimental. And that, in turn, is going to make it very, very difficult to actually fund realistic solutions going forward. And I'll give you a great example of that. You know, if you, just the other day, and we've been saying this for now two or three years, electric vehicles are very efficient once they've been produced. So once they're on the road and they're charging from the grid, they are more energy efficient and they're more carbon efficient than an internal combustion engine. But there's a big caveat there. It requires a huge amount of energy to produce an electric vehicle, notably to produce the battery that goes into the electric vehicle. So much energy gets consumed making that battery that by the time you roll the two vehicles off the lot, the EV is at a huge deficit, both in terms of the amount of energy that it's consumed and in terms of the amount of carbon that it's emitted because of the, all that energy it consumed. And it's not until some level of usage that it begins to approach parity. So the Wall Street, and, and we said this back in 2017, uh, the Wall Street Journal just recently wrote something that corroborates a lot of what we talked about. And they say that, you know, it's somewhere between 100 to 200,000 miles where the electric vehicle will, will become more CO2 efficient, energy efficient, what have you, total net basis relative to the internal combustion engine. So that raises a few problems. First of all, how long do you expect the battery to last? Because in this analysis, it sort of assumes that the battery lasts the full 200,000 miles. But if your battery is lasting between 100 and 200,000 miles, then you're going to have to replace the battery right where you sort of break even. And remember, that's where all the energy is, is fixated, is in manufacturing of that battery. Second, let's say you do get to 200,000 miles. You know, you're talking about eventually, you know, I think a savings against the internal combustion engine of like 20 to 30%. So if you look at transportation and the CO2 generated from transportation, and you assume that every car on the road can be turned over to a Tesla, which in and of itself is, you know, astronomical and obviously it's going to take decades to do and we'll run into problems with running out of battery metals and all types of things like that then when it's all said and done 
of the transportation slice of total CO2, you can probably shave 20 to 30% off if everything goes properly. I mean, that that's just astronomical. You're talking about, you know, since transportation is like 20% of CO2 and you're going to shave maybe 20% off that, you're talking about reducing global CO2 by 4%. You know, you look at cement, for instance, cement's 10% of global CO2. Steel is 10% of global CO2. I think eight or 9%, but rounded to 10%. And, and those are not, not attracting any investor interest or any investor capital. And so the biggest problem that I see is that if, in fact, this bubble and clean technology and clean energy that we have going on today does burst, what it's going to do inadvertently is close the gate on funding for a lot of these other technologies that actually could, in a more efficient and a more sensible manner, address much bigger portions of that CO2 pie. And that's going to be a real shame. And uranium, as you mentioned, is part of the solution like we see in France. When we spoke last, if I recall, about 15% of your portfolio was in uranium. Uh, the equities in uranium have done well the last six months. Have you increased that allotment in your uh, portfolio? How have you been playing uh, the uranium equities recently? Yeah, we've added a little bit. And then prices has helped to lift that uh, as a weight. I think we're you know approaching or at around 20%. So not not a huge change. Uh, we added, I think, one uh, one name. Um, you know, the problem with uranium investments is that there's not a lot of producing companies out there. And there's not even a lot of really, frankly, good next generation companies on the horizon. Um, so, you know, you have to sort of pick your pick your spots a little bit uh, carefully. Was that you a know, play on words when you said there's not a lot of next gen? Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that, that is the new name that we've that we've added. Uh, and then that that's been disclosed. So um, that that you know we the way we model things that's probably the best or the way we see it is the best of the new generation of um, of uranium mines. And so we had said you know going back a couple of years we'd identified that as a name we likely would add at some point once we felt the uranium bull market had legs. And some people could probably say we waited too long, and others could say we maybe jumped in too soon. So we'll have to wait and see. It's a bit of art and a bit of science, but they they do have a high quality mine uh, compared to other names that are out there. Uh, but you know their feasibility study is based on a higher uranium price than what we see today, and and that's sort of the the true across the uranium mining space. All the junior guys need a much higher price in order to move forward. That's one of the reasons that we're bullish on this space. And so, yeah, I think we're up, you know, just shy of 20% of the portfolio. Um, I, and I think that certainly when you look from a technical perspective, if you want to be really serious about reducing CO2, in our mind, what you need is you need a technology that's a more efficient converter of energy from fuel to usable power. And you need something that's base loadable and you need something that doesn't emit carbon. And there's really the only thing that meets those criteria are, is uranium. You know, gas uh, is very efficient. It converts energy 30 to 1. It does emit carbon, about half the carbon of coal. So in some regards, it's a very, very good uh, path to go down to try to reduce CO2 as well. It's base loadable. But, but there's carbon involved. Renewables is not base loadable. It is not more efficient. In fact, its efficiencies are terrible when you look at how much energy is required to make a windmill and a solar panel versus what it can dispatch. You're not talking 30 or 40 to 1. You're talking like between 5 to 1 and 10 to 1. So you're talking about 70% degradation in energy efficiency there compared to gas. And when you look at, at uranium, you're talking about 100 to 1 conversion. Uh, so by far, 
the most efficient harnessing of energy that, that we've ever known as a, as a society, um, completely base loadable and, and carbon free, you know, at the point of emissions, the carbon that you generate is, is in constructing the facility and stuff like that. So very, very de minimis carbon footprint. So we definitely think it's part of the solution going forward. We also think quite frankly, that the near-term rollout of new capacity through uh, China and India alone makes up for a very bullish supply demand story. So, you know, people say, okay, are, are you guys really invested in uranium here for the long term because you think that we're going to have a huge push in the West? I do think we're going to, and I think that's going to be a massive, massive, massive tailwind to the uranium story. But even without that, it, it's quite a bullish story because of what's happening in other parts of the world. But the Western world doesn't seem to get it right now. Do you think the hydrogen fuel cells have a place to play in everything we've been discussing? No, not at all. Not at and all. I think the big, the big problem with the hydrogen fuel cell is that if you look at, so, so, you know, what is hydrogen? Hydrogen, some people think of it as a fuel and some people think of it as a battery. And, and really it has some characteristics of both. I tend to think of it a little bit more as a battery. And the reason I say that is hydrogen doesn't exist in nature. So you have to manufacture it. And the way you manufacture it is you put electricity into the system. You create hydrogen, which can then be transported and stored, and then you run hydrogen through a fuel cell in order to create electricity. So to me, the hydrogen in that equation is very much the same as a battery, if you will. Now, the problem is lithium-ion batteries are very expensive, both in terms of energy and in terms of capital to manufacture, but they're actually quite efficient once they're manufactured at taking power in and then discharging power again, you know, 90%, call it, um, depth of discharge and things of that nature, round-trip efficiencies. When it comes to hydrogen, there's no upfront energy cost, but what you do do is you lose a huge amount of the electricity that you put into the system. So first, what you have to do is you take water and you run it through an electrolyzer, you put in electricity and you try to break the bonds between uh, the hydrogen uh, and the oxygen. And you're trying to separate that water into oxygen gas and, and what you're really going after is the hydrogen. That's incredibly energy intensive. And you lose, when you look at the energy contained, the potential energy contained in the hydrogen that comes out of that electrolyzer, you've lost 30% of the energy that you put in right there. It's, it's consumed making the hydrogen. Then you lose about another 15% when you then compress or liquefy the hydrogen and turn it from a gas into a liquid and transport it. And then you lose another 30% when you run it through the fuel cell again. So when it's all said and done, you've lost about 70% of the total energy that's gone in, which is quite onerous. You know, how do you overcome that? Most people that are pushing for green hydrogen today will say, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take all of that malinvestment in the wind and solar industries, all the redundancies, all the times where the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining and stuff like that. And, and we'll use that. So it doesn't matter. We could lose 95% of the energy uh, and we'll still be making out ahead because we would have lost all that energy anyway. So I suppose that's true, but that's not the stuff that total global energy supply chains are built on, you know, sort of taking up a little bit of, of the redundancies and things like that. You know, you're not going to be able to displace parts of the fleet even, um, let alone be able to justify costs of conversion for fleets into fuel cells and things of that nature if, if you're effectively just 
um, taking the waste uh, the waste power coming off of wind and solar. The other issue, of course, is that we don't think that there ought to be a huge amount of waste energy coming off of wind and solar because to begin with, those are not very efficient sources of carbon-free power. So uh, the whole thing becomes a little bit circular. Uh, but what's really, what it comes down to is the fact that if you're going to lose 70% of the power in a system, it's going to be very difficult to be competitive with anything else, both in terms of you know, energy efficiencies, clearly, but even in terms of carbon, you know, the carbon source needs to be 90% uh, less carbon intensive than what you're replacing in order uh, to be able to make up for all that lost energy. And nothing that we see today, certainly not wind and solar, uh, can do that. So ultimately, you'd be better off burning gasoline in an extremely efficient gasoline engine than trying to build wind and solar and create green hydrogen, lose 70% of the power through that. And the other thing I should point out is that electrolyzing water and running it through a fuel cell, we've been doing that a long time. And so I think there's a bit of this feeling that perhaps we have a big technological breakthrough coming around the corner. We see very little indication of that. You know, it's, it's a fairly straightforward uh, equation to be able to look at what the limits are to that efficiency. And there's just inherent thermodynamic limits to how efficient you can make that. And we're basically pretty much there now. Adam, one more question before you go. Any soft commodities you're bullish on that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, we're, we're bullish throughout the grain complex. And we play that through investments in fertilizers mostly. Uh, and the phosphates invest, have done well, right? Recently. They have potash phosphates. They, they've done well. Um, we, we've held those positions for some time, but we recently added to them. And what we, uh, you know, going back a year or so, demand for grain around the world has been very, very strong for the last decade or so, driven mostly again by China. But growing conditions have been really strong too. And so you've had these periods of extreme productive uh, crop yields and things of that nature. And so we've basically been in a balanced market and grain prices have been sort of sideways and lackluster and what have you. And fertilizer prices have done nothing for the last several years. But every year you go into the growing season and you run, run the numbers and you say, you know, this year you're going to have to see a bumper crop just to be able to make supply and demand meet. And what are the odds of that? You know, just looking at the distribution of yields and stuff like that, the odds are against you. And so prices ought to go higher. But year in and year out, we have gotten that bumper crop condition. Uh, and it does seem to be on a global coordinated basis that we've been very, very, very fortunate with crop yields. And so prices haven't really moved as a result of that. But every year we kind of reassess and we say, you know, this is still, even though it's gone against us for the last X years, this is a pretty good risk return given what we need to see happen um, just to keep the markets balanced. And last year didn't, you know, last year we had some severe weather and a bunch of growing condition, uh, growing regions in the U.S. And that led to yields that were not as good as everyone expected. And so in a hurry, you went from a amply supplied year to a very, very tight year and, and stockpiles drew as a result of that. Going forward, we we have drought conditions in parts of the U.S. now going into the planting season, which bodes for, for a less um, you know productive year. So we are starting to see some indications coming out of China that perhaps something's happening with their grain conditions there as well. Uh, again, you just have to read between the lines a little bit, but there are a lot of language and a lot of uh, subtle points that that sort of suggest to uh, a shortage developing in, in the various grain markets. And that's leading to increased imports of Western uh, grain, uh, both, you know, wheat, corn and soy. So uh, I think what 
potentially we could have another sort of tight year here. We're going into it much tighter. And finally, both crop prices and fertilizer prices have started to respond. So we are quite bullish. Again, you know, every year you've needed this perfect growing conditions just to have supply and demand meet. Last year you didn't. And I think this year we're shaping up to maybe have a tough year too. So all that bodes very well for price. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Your website is gorosen.com. And just as we conclude, what can investors find there? Well, we're prolific uh, publishers of everything that we do. You know, we're trying to be very transparent. So we put all of our research and writing. Uh, we have some videos, some podcasts, all, all kinds of things like that. But we really try to be uh, open and try to share with with all of our uh, followers what it is that we're doing. So if you have interest in the commodity markets, we definitely would invite you to come take a look. Everything's free. Nothing's behind a paywall or anything like that. And please come and, uh, and take a look. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the show today, Adam. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.